0: Of a former psychiatric hospital in Runwell near Wickford would create 800 jobs. BBC News. The Governor of the Bank of
1: England calls for a radical reform of the banks, and as the security threat to Britain increases too severe, we're told to be vigilant but not to panic. It's all in today, in Parliament, in half an hour. Before that, on BBC Radio 4, the writer John Ronson continues his series with John Ronson on. Being alone. A little while ago, I was walking through central London when, to my delight, I noticed an old friend, the writer and broadcaster, David Quantic. I saw you and I thought, there's David Quantic. And I sort of gave a big wave in your direction. I thought, whenever I see David, it's always really nice. Sometimes we have coffee and then I sort of went bounding towards you and then you noticed me and without realising that I was seeing you you hid behind a car
0: I don't remember it like that all I remember is the moment like the moment of creation I remember seeing you and deciding to ignore you I don't remember you waving I don't remember hiding behind a car but I might have done but no I remember I could take you like you I could take you there now and show you the spot where it happened in that street behind Chinatown in London yeah remember thinking i don't feel like talking to anyone yeah so yeah i saw there's john and hid from you
1: yeah i mean obviously there was always the possibility that it was something to do with me being unlikable but i thought (laughs) that can't be it for two Mm. reasons firstly what's not to like and secondly usually when i see you we have a lovely time cup of coffee or something i mean that's happened
0: but no we always have a good chat when we meet
1: can you sort of dissect what's going on in your brain at these moments?
0: Cool. It's partly just wanting to be on your own. It's just feeling antisocial, but just making a decision that... I'm sure a lot of people just groan. They see someone they know, it's like... Imagine the Queen has to do it and pops to, it's like... Oh, God, there's Jim. And the thing is, you've got that getaway period. I was unlucky with you because you saw me. But you have a getaway period where they haven't seen you, but you've seen them.
1: It made me wonder whether this kind of thing happens all the time. I happen to notice you hiding from me. <laughs> but do you think this happens, like, all the time to everybody? Do you think cities are like this kind of complicated dance of people avoiding each other, like, all the time?
0: Yes, I do. But the problem is, that in the city, you're quite right, you're so pushed into people all the time, you have no choice. If you live in lark Rise to Candleford, it's like, I think I'll go and see John Ronson today, and you pack your bag and you get on your horse and off you go... There was a thing when I ignored you that I was aware that I would be seeing you probably fairly soon. And we could have a much better conversation when I was in a good yeah. mood. Whereas had we been Arctic explorers, I probably would have run towards If you said, hello, David, and we were at the North Pole, I probably would have responded. Yeah. If I was an animal, I'd be one of those weird gorillas that goes and sits on its own under a tree... And every so often another gorilla comes over and hits it for being weird. Every time I start a conversation, I'm always thinking how to get out of it. You know, conversations are like one-night stands. You know, I think in a world where you could go to women to talk to them, or men, that would be an ideal world for me, where it's like, I feel like having a chat, go in a booth. So, what do you think of the Beatles? They're not too bad. Well, thank you very much. You Leave 20 quid on the table and go.
1: So actually, you know what? I mean, I found your behaviour that Sunday morning, at the time, horrific. but But now I'm thinking about it. We're the same.
0: I agree. I still don't find it horrific. I can see how you might have been distressed and angered, and I would have been as well. But at the time, I just thought, for once, because I'm quite socially dishonest, I find myself a lot of times telling people I like things that I don't like, going to things I don't want to go to, and that day, I just thought, you know what, if I can get away with ignoring John, then I will. And I think it's brilliant that you got me. (laughs) Did you know until now that i had spotted you? Yeah, because you came up to me and said you were ignoring me. Oh, I did,
1: didn't I? Yeah. that's right. Because I couldn't remember whether I wanted to do that or actually did do it. I'm glad I did it. So I think you I walked it, right yeah. up to you when you crouched behind the car, <laughs> I and I said,
0: "Crouched behind the car,"
1: and I said, "What?" <laughs> Why is it, when we're supposed to be social creatures who crave the company of others, we spend so much of our lives in a complicated dance designed to avoid people? Here's the writer,
2: Graham Linehan. I lived in Islington for a few years with uh, my soon-to-be wife. And, you know, Islington being one of those places where you see... The occasional famous person, Terry, what's his name from the specials? uh, Uh, Yeah, Terry Hall. And we saw this famous person, me and Helen. We'd just come back from holiday, and I was very excited because I proposed to Helen while we were on holiday. And we were walking down the street, we saw this famous guy. And the famous guy is actually someone I knew very well. I'd worked with him, and he's really nice. He's always been terribly, terribly sweet, and I always liked him. One of the business's good guys, you know? Very down to earth as well, you know. Nothing bad about him at all. I can't say who it is. Um, and he saw me, and I was with Helen. And I said, "Oh, uh, this is my fiance," I'm feeling quite proud. And he said, "Hello." <laughs> right. And I said, "We're getting married." <laughs> and he said, "Yeah, I, n- I know what fiance means." <laughs> and I said, ho-ho! okay, bye," and and kind of went off and. Um, It kind of developed into a strange thing then, because I was like, what the hell was that about? That was the weirdest thing. He's such a nice guy as well, you know? And then the first time I saw him after that incident, I was turning my head, and as I turned my head, I saw him down the road, across the road, turning his head really quickly. And what I presumed had happened was... He had seen that I was just about to see him. So he turned his head really quickly so we wouldn't meet eyes and we wouldn't have to go over and talk to each other. So he turned his head and I realised, well, that's what I want. That's great. So I looked around, kind of turned my head and looked at the wall beside me and just kind of doodaloo and, and in that way, we walked by each other, you know. After that, every single time we saw each other, The rule was, whoever saw the other person first would make sure to be turned away so that the second person had a chance to turn away as well. And in that way, we never spoke to each other again when we were in Islington. It was the strangest, strangest thing. Do you know why? I have no idea. I still have no idea. I mean, do you think he felt contrite about... No. (laughs) I mean,
1: we're all sort of... Coming up, you know, trying to make up the rules really, really quickly, aren't we, in those kind of situations? And it just must have just gelled in this slightly kind of off way, like like when someone breaks their foot and then they cast it badly, and the little toes always sticking slightly out. Yeah. Maybe that was what happened. (laughs) Graham Linehan. I wonder if our urge to be alone comes from our knowledge deep down that that's when we are most ourselves. Could that be it? Are we only truly ourselves when we're alone? Ollie Hicks is alone. Very alone. So, Ollie, where are you?
3: At about 45 degrees, 43 minutes south, 150 degrees, 28 minutes east. Um, if that means anything to you, it means
1: nothing to um, me.
3: Somewhere between Australia and New Zealand.
1: So, you're on a boat. How big's the boat?
3: 24 feet long, 7 metres.
1: God. It's what can you see?
3: I can't see very much. It's black, it's pitch black. Can't see anything.
1: Where's the nearest next person?
3: I don't know, probably Tasmania or, or New Zealand, or maybe on a ship. But I've been out here about 40, just under 40 days, and we uh, have only seen one ship. There's not much traffic down here.
1: So you've not seen another human being in 40 days?
3: Uh, no, no. The longer you are without it, you grow to quite enjoy it.
1: Are you finding yourself talking to passing seagulls?
3: Yeah, I do occasionally. I talk to the albatrosses a bit. What do you um, say to them? Well, just ask them how they are, see where they're going, what they're up to. We don't have long conversations, just a little bit of small talk. Yeah.
1: And do they then peck at your face?
3: Yeah, they peck at the boat a bit. But no, they don't come on deck.
1: So it's it's interesting that you said that after, after a little while of being alone, you start to quite enjoy it. How many days into being alone does that happen?
3: Well, it's still sort of happening. I think it's different this time. When I was going across the Atlantic, I hardly had any contact with the outside. I didn't use this phone very much. And I was much more cut off. And that was actually easier. There's quite a lot of food scraps that were put up in the boat before I left, which I don't think helps. It's probably better not to have them because otherwise you're always reminded of what you're missing.
1: Yeah, what are the photographs of?
3: Friends at home, at parties and stuff. Yeah, you sort of think back to what you could be missing, but but then I'm just actually just writing my daily diary now, and of course the grass is always greener on the other side, so... You mean um, that if you
1: were at a party, you'd be wishing that you were in the middle of nowhere in Antarctica?
3: Maybe not at a party, but if I was sitting behind my desk... (laughs) <laughs> in an office, I should think I'd definitely rather be here.
1: I have to say, Ollie, you sound a little unhappy.
3: Unhappy? Yeah. Perhaps not at all. You're happy? Yeah, yeah, perfectly happy.
1: That's good. I'd hate to think of you out there unhappy. But looking, are you, th- <laughs> are you thinking about taking those photographs down? Yeah,
3: well, I thought about it today, but I don't think I will.
1: Leave them be. I would like to talk to you again in six months' time. Just to see whether anything yeah. to see whether anything's changed.
4: Been
2: alone so long that I've forgotten what it's like to feel somebody next to me and hear her breathing peacefully when I wake up at
1: night. So, Ollie, I spoke to you, what, about two months ago? Yeah, I imagine about two months ago. Two months ago, and we agreed to talk again in six months to see how your voyage was going on. Sure. I can't help noticing that you're sitting in this room with me now.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, I am sitting in this room. What Um, happened? Well, I knew from day two, basically, there were some problems with the boat. By the end of the trip, the average speed was eight miles a day.
1: And you were completely on your own, yeah. going incredibly slowly.
5: Totally, alone, eight miles a day. And that was the crux of it, was the progress. The trip had been projected to take two years and it was looking like it was going to take five years. (laughs) As it turned out, I was only alone for 96 days, so...
1: When you're alone for 96 days and you're getting frustrated, how does the frustration manifest itself?
5: Well, just little things wind you up very quickly. So when you're rowing, you're being steered by an autopilot... And, you know, you're just effing and blinding at this autopilot when it starts beefing at you and it's lost its course. Out loud? Yeah, hey, out loud, like throwing things and like slamming the oars and hitting the boat. And there's no way of venting your frustration because you are alone. So you can shout at the sea, the waves, the seagulls.
1: So um, if somebody had seen you, <laughs> would you have looked like this kind of... An angry man. Like a crazy, <laughs> crazy man. Yeah. I still don't understand how you can be alone for 96 days. I I can't think of anything worse. (laughs) I find it hard to be on my own for a weekend. (laughs)
5: Really. People always say that, how can you do that? I can't be alone for a day. I find that quite odd. I find it slightly pathetic, quite weird. I'm sure people say the same about me. How can you be alone? But 96 days, it's three months. It's not a particularly long time. It's just unusual because there's no time in your life where you do that
1: in normal life. So are you more yourself when you're on your own than when you're in a room full of people.
5: Probably you are, yeah, because you don't have to conform to any character that people sort of think you are. I suppose you're completely yourself. There's no sort of mask whatsoever. It's just you do whatever you want and you are how you are.
1: Do you think if all of us were on our own for 96 days, we'd end up just screaming and...
5: <laughs> uh, well, it wasn't always like that. It was just when, uh, you know, those were the bad days. They were good days
1: too. I think maybe. I mean, it's a terrible thing to confess, but I think if you're quite happy with yourself and you're pretty together, you can spend 96 days alone and if you're not, it's very hard to spend even two days alone.
5: Yeah, I think that's probably right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Holly Hicks. Are we most ourselves when we're alone or when we're with others? Dermot Strain is more equipped to answer this than most people. He spent his teenage years, from the age of 12 to 20, training to be a priest, spending days at a time, silent and alone, so he could try and work out if he wanted to spend his
6: life silent and alone. I grew up in a very Catholic home. Walls covered in pictures and, you know, we went to church regularly and we held the church in very, very high regard. And an Irish missionary priest came to our school in Glasgow. He didn't have PowerPoint, he didn't have all the flashy slides they have now. But he had a really strong message and that was that Africa needed help in the missions. It was probably the most um, dramatic session I'd had of my 12 years of existence at that point in time and uh, I came out of that session and I went home that day and I spoke to my mother and I said mum you know I think I'd like to be a priest. She then said well you know this is something between you and and God something that you know God gives you a calling you've either got it or you've not got it so let's look at what we need to do to make that happen and six months later I was in the seminary. Must have been hard going through your adolescence though as a seminary student. Yeah, I think adolescence in general is difficult. I think in a seminary environment, it's probably that bit more difficult. Huge sacrifices. I mean, were you at the age of
1: 12, 13, 14, realising that you were going to have to live your life without a partner, celibate? Well, these are things that they were telling you that you had to do.
6: You don't go there to become a priest. You go there to understand if you've got the calling to become a priest. So when I went there, I didn't know if I was going to be there for the rest of my life in in the priesthood, but I went there to give it a chance and see what the outcome might be. And were you pretty sure that it was right for you? Yeah, I was more sure that it was right for me.
1: Do some adolescents think that celibacy is for them?
6: Well, there's an interesting uh, expression used. It's called the gift of celibacy. You know, we all kind of laughed about it at the time. We were young kids and we said, well, it's not exactly a gift is it um but people choose it
1: um actually the kind of gift it is it's a bit like the kind of gift of being sent flowers because you think at first that's nice but actually then you have to do all the work you have to bash the stems you have to cut you have to put it into the water you have to make sure that it's back. you know it's much easier yeah. to give flowers than it is to receive them well, that's right? an interesting
6: analogy well
1: yeah all to give flowers all you have to do is yeah. them into flora mm-hmm. and then to receive flowers you have to be in
6: you know, bash, mm. water, food, blah. Mm. So the next time I give somebody flowers, I'll, I'll remember what you said. There it, yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Giving flowers is a
1: present that's much harder <laughs> on the recipient, right? Okay. Than it is on the giver. Much like I assume the gift of celibacy. Exactly.
6: We had uh, silences, we had prayer sessions, we had meditation. And so when you had those moments, then you took those moments to be alone uh, mentally to think through what you were doing and, and make sure you were making the right choices.
1: How long would you be in silence for?
6: Well, the, the most extreme would be three days.
1: You know, I'm, I'm never silent and I never meditate. Do you think you reached somewhere, or reached a place... That I could not understand.
6: No, I, I don't actually. People get there in their own ways. You've probably get your own way of of doing the same thing. No, I don't. <laughs> I'm just trying to think if I did, but I, I don't.
1: I just basically, I just I spend my time um, shrieking panicked. Um right? So, which isn't good. <laughs> Describe the
6: sensation of three days silence. You literally just sit and let your mind flow and you realise that you control your mind too much and if you try to not control it and let it just relax and flow on its own then the issues that matter to you will come to the surface and you'll start to think about them So how long into the two and a half days
1: would you you think would celibacy pop into your head?
6: Pretty quickly because it's probably the number one issue that you're dealing with in terms of sacrificing for the priesthood. And I began to realise, you know, I, I did value the, the chance to have a wife and have children. And would you then imagine yourself
1: with an imaginary child, like father and son, together?
6: Yeah, yeah. Would you picture the child? I got as far as, you know, the I could feel the senses of holding my, my own child, and it, and it felt very good. Because I was making such big decisions at that time relative to the seminary and priesthood, then clearly for me, when I started to relax, I started to realise that I didn't really want to be in the seminary.
1: Can't help thinking that from a seminary perspective, that was a bit of a failure. Because <laughs> your, your free-flowing of
6: thought made you realise that this wasn't for you. Yeah, it's not a failure, because the seminary is all about testing a vocation. You know, and So when you test something, you either pass or you fail. And in the case of a vocation, if it doesn't work, then... It's not a failure. It's just that's that wasn't supposed to be. It wasn't supposed to happen.
1: So you decided to send back the gift of celibacy. You, yes, you I had thank f- you. <laughs> had it for a while, decided that you didn't want it. You returned to sender. Exactly. I sometimes wonder whether we are most ourselves when we're on our own or whether we're most ourselves when we're with other people. Uh, Having spent more time in silent reflection than most people, have you you come to any conclusions about that?
6: I I still like my time alone now. I'm married with a child, but I I do also still value that opportunity just to get away from everything and think about things and look backwards as well as looking forwards. Um, So I do believe that being alone and taking time to be alone... It's probably something we don't do often enough.
1: Dermid Strain, who instead of becoming a priest became the finance director of Procter & Gamble. As this series is usually full of underachieving nerds, someone like Dermid would normally be our most successful interviewee. But not this time, because you are about to hear from Dr Yoshiro Nakamatsu who holds the world record for inventing the most things. He's invented over 3,000 things. And although he has a staff of 110, he is a poster boy for being alone, because he says when he's not alone, he has nothing, no talent, no creativity. So you've invented the karaoke machine?
4: Karaoke and the floppy disk, kerosene pump.
1: The floppy disk?
4: Yes, floppy Disc I have invented in nineteen forty seven.
1: And the digital watch?
4: Yes, digital watch.
1: It says you invented the uh the taxicab meter.
4: Of course. Every taxicab are using it. In the world? In the world, yes. Did you really invent the armchair? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm.
1: Actually, he invented a particular type of armchair called the cerebrex. He also invented the source pump. And he did it all alone, in the most solitary place he could think of, underwater, at the moment of death.
4: Under the water, there is no oxygen. Therefore, just before this, 0.5 seconds before death, I can suddenly create... New invention. Because of lack of oxygen, brain condition is completely different from uh, normal condition. That sounds incredibly dangerous. Dan- very dangerous. So yes.
1: what happens to you in, in that moment, just before yes. death? What happens to your brain?
4: Brain become completely different power and create completely different uh, new idea.
1: So what do you hallucinate, and in the hallucination, uh, you invent?
4: Yes, so uh, under the water suddenly comes from uh, another world, different idea comes.
1: How did you first discover that being deprived of oxygen made you more creative? How did you know that?
4: I didn't know, but uh, I have tried many, many ways... Somebody says uh, you can create inventions in a um, toilet or bathtub or many, many opinions. But I tried everything, but it was not efficient to create good invention. Therefore, I finally found by myself to dive under the water. That's the most effective way.
1: Is it something to do with being completely alone? You're, you're most alone when you're underwater and you're deprived of oxygen. Do you think that's it?
4: Yes, this completely alone is very important. You know, so-called um, exchanging ideas, several people uh, discussing this, it I mean nothing to create a new invention. Invention should be mm-hmm. due only one person.
1: I agree. When I'm in a meeting with people, like for this radio series, and I'm in a meeting with the producers, I find that unhelpful. I Mm. find that they don't have ideas.
4: Yes, that's right. You are right. Yes. Every discussion is a waste of time. Yes, yes. Yes. (laughs) I agree. Okay, you agree. Okay, you are smart.
1: (laughs) So, okay, (laughs) you dive under the water.
4: Yes, that's right.
1: And for the first few seconds, does anything happen or, 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 or is it Nothing. Only...
4: Nothing happens. You must dive until you are dead. That is important.
1: I've got to say, Dr. Nakamats, I really, mm. really hope that people listening to this don't try it because it mm-hmm. sounds incredibly dangerous.
4: Of course, of course. Don't try. Don't try. I shall do it only by me. <laughs> <laughs> Is that because
1: you're, you're worried that if people try it, they'll come up with, with a whole new type yeah. of chair? <laughs> no, it's because we don't want people to die, of course.
4: Yeah. Such new idea disappears very quickly. Huh. Therefore, I must make memo. And usual paper is difficult to write under the water, therefore I have invented underwater usable pad system.
1: It must be hard to swim and write at the same
4: time. No, no. and after making memo, then come up to the surface. What
1: kind of things have you written down on the pad?
4: Sometimes I shall write down a formula, and sometimes a drawing, or sometimes electronic circuit. By the way... Uh, mm. I'm thinking usually midnight to 4 a.m. This is I call the golden time for thinking, Hmm. and so everybody is sleeping this time. But I'm waking up, and after 4 a.m. I have only uh, four hours sleep. I'm not doing invention for make money. My spirit of invention is love by my invention. Every people in the world will become happy. That is my love to them.
1: Dr Yoshiro
4: Nakamatsu, who spends his
1: life alone, underwater, at the moment of death, so he can give love to other people, those people who buy his things, even if he never meets them. Where we began with david quantic trying to work out why he spends his life hiding from people he doesn't really have anything against
0: when you're on your own it's kind of fake because you're interacting with something that isn't really there you can't interact with yourself you think you can i think this sounds really naff you're only really yourself when you're with someone who really knows you so basically with your partner or your best friend or your mum, depending on your relationship, because they know you, you can drop your guard. Also, you can't bullshit them, basically. If you say something, they might pick you up on it, whatever. But if you're with somebody you love and knows you, then I think you're as near to being yourself as you can be. John Ronson on
1: Being Alone was presented by the writer John Ronson. It was produced by Laura Parfitt and Simon Jacobs. Well, banking and security were on the agenda in Parliament today, as we'll hear in a moment.
5: What we try to do on The Bottom Line is to make sure business is not just the stuff you get in the second section of the newspaper. The Bottom Line returns to BBC Radio 4, presented by Evan Davis. It's about the decisions that business leaders take, and not just about finance and the city and takeovers and rights issues. They're about things like the price they charge for their product, how to look after their staff, how to organise themselves internally. It's the business that really matters to most of us. The bottom line, starting on Thursday evening at half past eight, repeated on
6: Saturday afternoon at half past five.
1: Now to Westminster.